Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Acts chapter 19. I'm going to cover verses 1 through 20. This is Paul on his third missionary journey in Ephesus. In our last chapter, chapter 18, at the very end of the chapter, we saw Paul leaving Antioch of Syria as he started out on his third journey. He went through Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia. They're not named, but I'm sure that's where they, that's where Paul went through. That was the second time. That was the third time, actually, he had visited those towns. Nothing much is said by Luke in chapter 18 about that visit. And then Paul shows up in Ephesus, and that's where we begin in Acts chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples. The interior regions, that means the interior of Asia Minor, and that was the, and that's where we know that he traveled through, probably, through Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidia, and Antioch. So basically he's going through Phrygia, Galatia, and then Phrygia on his way to Ephesus. He found some disciples. Now, verse 1 says, while Apollos was in Corinth. You recall in chapter 18 at the end, we have a notation by Luke that Apollos had showed up from Alexandria. He was an Alexandrian Jew with a Greek name. He shows up in Ephesus. He wasn't. Lear- he only knew about um, John the Baptist baptism, and he was instructed by us, Aquila and Priscilla, who were there at Ephesus. And then some Greek brothers said, please come on over to Achaia, to Greece. And Apollos went over probably to Corinth. And so now we have this reference, while Apollos was in Corinth. So Apollos is in Corinth, and Paul arrives in Ephesus. And he found some disciples there. Now let's talk about Aquila and Priscilla. The NIV Study Bible maps out the itinerary here of those two famous co-workers with Paul. Aquila and Priscilla had met him, met Paul in Ephesus, and, excuse me, met Apollos in Ephesus, instructed him as Apollos came from wherever he came from. Apollos had left Ephesus for Corinth before Paul arrived at Ephesus, but he came back to Ephesus while Paul was still there, because we read not here in Acts, but in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. So Paul is writing to Corinthians saying, I wanted Apollos to leave me and go to you. Well, that means he must have come back from Corinth and back to Ephesus where he was with Paul. Now, here at Ephesus, in verse 1, Paul met some disciples. In verse 7, it says there was 12 of them. John Gill says this about them. Such as believed in Christ, made a profession of him, and had been baptized in his name. We're going to see that these believers had been baptized. Later on, they were baptized by Paul, actually. And so they made a profession, and so they were believers, as John Gill points out. Now, why is this important? It's important because these believers also had the Holy Spirit come upon them. The baptism of the Holy Spirit which shows that believers in Christ can exist who have not received the Holy Spirit. Now, if you apply that to modern day, what does that tell you? That tells you that the charismatic Pentecostal doctrine of subsequence is right on. It shows that those who want to say that we all got it all when we got baptized, when we got saved, got some explaining to do. And, of course, they do try to explain it by saying this is a special case. I call it special pleading, but there you have it. Now, these 12 disciples could have been converted by Apollos there in Ephesus. And remember, Apollos only knew the baptism of John, as Acts 18, verse 25, the end of the verse says. Apollos only knew the baptism of John, and perhaps he converted these 12, and he didn't know of any other baptism to tell the disciples but the baptism of John. NIV study Bible suggests that. John Gill denies it. It's a speculation. Now, Paul showing up at Ephesus 
was a fulfillment of his promise because on the second journey when he left Ephesus, in verse 21 of Acts chapter 18, we read this, but he said goodbye and stated, I'll come back to you again if God wills. Then he set sail from Ephesus. Well, God did will, and he came back, and not only did he come back, he stayed for two years and three months. Acts 19, verse 2, we continue. Paul asked these 12 believers that he ran into, asked and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. When you believe, now in verse 1, they were called disciples. In verse, in verse 2, they are said to be believers by Paul. Now, if they're called disciples by Luke in verse 1, and they're called believers by Paul in verse 2, what does that tell us? These people were Christians, just like you and I. And Paul asked these Christians, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Oh, well, does this mean that Paul doesn't believe that Christians have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit? No, of course not. Of course, you have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit when you believe. But he's talking about another work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, why can't there be another work of the Holy Spirit? We have regeneration. We have sanctification. Why can't we have baptism for, for miraculous gifts and powers and speaking in tongues? Why not? Now, how do anti-Pentecostals and anti-Charismatics explain this, cessationists? How do they explain this? Well, they say this is a special case that when Luke says in Acts 1.8, I think it is, that the I'll give you power to witness for the gospel to go out from Jerusalem to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. This is the uttermost parts of the earth that the Holy Spirit just did a special Pentecost for Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, in Samaria, in Acts chapter 8, and then in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19. A whole special Pentecost, 12 people. And in Acts chapter 10 would be, other most parts of the earth would be Gentiles there in Acts 10. Of course, now they can't explain in Acts 9, where Paul, the apostle, was filled with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't fit into that scheme so well, but the other four do. So this is how they explain it away. Special pleading, folks. That's the If I'd hate to go into a, a law a courtroom and defend somebody who believed that. Unfortunately, that's what most evangelicals believed because they cannot get, they cannot look at the plain pattern in Acts and see what is obviously there because they're so frightened of speaking in tongues that it might ruin their church, might split their church, might cause their offerings to go down. Now, some people have said that it seems very strange that these disciples had not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. They had heard of John's baptism. They had received John's baptism. And if they knew anything about John's baptism, they would have known that the Holy Spirit fell on Jesus at John's baptism. So if they were familiar with John's baptism, they probably would have been familiar with the Holy Spirit falling down. This is John Gill's idea. In fact, John the Baptist in Matthew 3.11 announced that Jesus was to baptize in the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with you water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not unworthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so the question is, is, why didn't these converts have heard of the Holy Spirit since the Holy Spirit was integrally involved with John's baptism? Well, here's one answer I can think of is that that was just not mentioned by the people who taught these disciples. They knew about baptism of repentance. They knew about John, that that was the main purpose that John was baptizing for. There were other types of Jewish baptisms, and they were all for repentance. That was a common thing to baptize for repentance, to wash the proselytes with water, and they just hadn't gotten taught about the Holy Spirit, especially when you consider that these Ephesian converts were Greek and not Jews, and John the Baptist was mainly aiming at Jews. They just might not have heard about it. So some people... But some people say that 
it wasn't that they didn't know that the Holy Spirit existed, but they didn't know that you could receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit after you got converted. Now, I don't know if that's what Luke means here, but John Gill thinks so. Adam Clark thinks so. Jameson Fawcett and Brown thinks so. Here's what Adam Clark says. They simply meant, the, the 12 Ephesian believers, simply meant that they had not heard that the Spirit in his gifts had been given to or received by anyone. In other words, the receiving of the gift with miraculous powers like speaking in tongues. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this. This cannot be the meaning, the, mean, the meaning that they had never even heard that the Holy Spirit existed. This cannot be the meaning, since the personality and office of the Holy Ghost in connection with Christ formed an especial subject of the Baptist teaching. Literally, the words are, we did not even hear whether the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost was given, meaning at the time of their baptism. Well, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I do think it's interesting that these old commentators, 19th century commentators, Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, point out that it was possible for somebody to be a believer and then not have heard that the Holy Spirit came in another work, as Clark puts it, this Spirit in his gifts, and that it, that had not happened yet. These guys were not Pentecostals. They were not Charismatics, and yet they recognized that here we're talking about a different work of the Holy Spirit than when the believers believed. We go to verse 3. Then what baptism were you baptized with? He, Paul, asked them, the twelve Ephesian disciples. With John's baptism, they replied. Now, notice that Paul just assumes that they were baptized. I mean, if, if you're a disciple, you had to have been baptized. Why did Paul assume that? There's a lot of Christians today who've never been baptized. Well, back then, the pattern was, you get saved, you, you say you're going to be a follower of Jesus, by golly, you get baptized. That's the first thing you do. That's the pattern. Immediate baptism, not waiting with a catechumen class and waiting for months and years, wait till your deathbed. No, you got saved, you got baptized. That's the way it ought to be today, too. Acts 19.4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. And what Paul is doing here is saying, well, now, the baptism you got was a baptism of repentance, and the implication is that means you didn't get baptized in Jesus. You got baptized with John's baptism of repentance, but you need to get baptized in the one who came after him in Jesus. As the NIV study body put it, put, puts it, the baptism of repentance is, quote, preparatory and provisional. It stressed man's sinfulness, thus creating a great need for the gospel. It looked forward to Jesus. So basically, these disciples, had they had mixed up the type with the anti-type, if you will, if I can put it that way. They just hadn't been properly instructed yet. All Jewish baptisms of proselytes stress repentance. John's did also, but his was different in the sense that he also stressed the one who was coming later. In the future, Jesus. Anyway, Paul instructs them correctly. Verse 5, when they, the twelve Ephesians disciples, heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. All right, so now in verse 1, Luke says they were disciples. In verse 2, Paul says that they were believers. And in verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Guess what, folks? These guys were believers. Verse 1, 2, and 5 proves that. And guess what? They had still not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is coming in just a, little, a minute. Now, let's get off of that controversial subject and talk about water baptism now. Because some people cavil at the thought that Christians should be, quote, unquote, rebaptized. They were already baptized once. How can they be baptized again? And so Adam Clark says that these cavilers come up with many explanations to show that they weren't rebaptized. 
I don't know what those arguments are. I don't care what they are. Because Adam Clark states the matter very simply. They weren't being rebaptized. When they got baptized in the name of Jesus, that was their first Christian baptism. What happened before didn't count. And I can't help but make an application to the modern day. If you've got a little baby who gets sprinkled in a Presbyterian church, well, that's fine and dandy, but they weren't baptized. And if they decide to follow the scripture and see that only believers got baptized, and if they as a believer get baptized, well, then that's their first Christian baptism. They have not received two baptisms. I don't personally don't believe in two baptisms, but I was sprinkled as a baby in the Presbyterian church, and I do not anymore consider that a baptism than that a Mormon who believes Mormon doctrine is saved. I don't, you know, that's just not now. It ain't true. That was my first Christian baptism happened when I was at the University of South Carolina, not when I was an unbelieving infant. We go to verses 6 and 7. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other languages and to prophesy. That's again speaking tongues, and this is the standard thing that happens when people get baptized the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that it has to happen, but it generally does happen. And they also began to prophesy. So you see now the Holy Spirit is not only regenerated, but now we're, now we're talking about spiritual gifts, charisma. Now there were about 12 men in all. Now the Holy Spirit came on them. This is just as, just as what happened in four other places in Acts. In Acts 2, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go through these very quickly and show that it will fill the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues followed either explicitly or implicitly. Acts 2, at Pentecost, all, they were all in Jerusalem. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak in different tongues. In Acts 8, this is in Samaria. Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So they got baptized in the Holy Spirit and later on, Simon Magus saw that the Holy Spirit had come upon them. How did he see? What did he see? Well, he's, what he saw was speaking in tongues. This implied the Apostle Paul. Ananias in Damascus laid his hands on the Apostle Paul and said, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul was baptized in the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say anything about him speaking in tongues right then, but we know that later on Paul spoke in tongues more than you all, certainly more than John MacArthur or Justin Peters. We go now here to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house in Caesarea in Acts 10, or Todd Friel in Acts 10. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, as Peter said in Acts 11, just as at the beginning. Well, at the beginning, they spoke in tongues, and guess what? In Acts 10, at Cornelius' house, they heard them speaking in other languages, in tongues, and declaring the greatness of God. So there's your pattern. You get saved, you get baptized in water, you get filled with the Spirit, you speak in tongues, maybe do some other gifts like prophecy and healing, and we all live happily ever after, instead of getting involved in Endless theological wars. We go to verse 8 in chapter 19 of Acts. Then he, Paul, entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months. This is when he just got to Ephesus. Engaging in discussion and trying to persuade them about the things of the kingdom of God. He engaged in discussion, which is basically means he was arguing with them. He was refuting with them. He was discussing with them. He was reasoning with them. And he was trying to persuade them. Nothing wrong with trying. Of course, Paul did a lot of trying. And, and you could say, well, he failed because maybe he didn't do a good enough job of witness. No, the Holy Spirit is who opens people's heart, like he opened Lydia's heart in Acts 16. It's our job to try to persuade. If people listen or they don't listen, that's not our business. That's God's business. But it's our job to try to persuade the best we can. And if we take a hit when people don't believe us, that's just the way it is. Now, Paul went to the synagogue first before he went to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and this 
is his usual customary pattern. He goes to the Jews first in the synagogues, then he goes to the Gentiles. And this is repeated over and over and over again in the book of Acts. I won't bore you with citations to that effect. Notice it took the Jews a little bit longer to get mad at Paul. In Thessalonica, he didn't last but two weeks, uh, three Sabbaths in Thessalonica, two to three weeks. And I think in, on the first journey in Antioch, Pisidia, he didn't last very long either. It didn't take them long to get mad, and they got all hysterical. But here he made for three weeks. Why? Who knows? Now, this trying to persuade, John Gill says he won many of these Jews over. And I don't know how John Gill knows that, except that verse 9 says, When some became hardened, that some implies that there were a lot who were not hardened. I can hope that's so. I don't know if you can squeeze that much information out of the word some, but if so, that's good news. People are getting saved. We go to verse 9. When some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them and met separately with the disciples, conducting discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, the Jews slandered the way. Holman Christian Study Bible capitalizes way with a capital W. That's what the church was called back then. We see it here in verse 9 in Acts 10, later on in Acts Acts 19, verse 9, and later on in Acts 19, verse 23, it's called the way, and also in Acts 16, Acts 18, and Acts 24. So it was called the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Sounds like Taoism, doesn't the way? But Taoism's a bunch of baloney. Jesus is the truth and the light. So Paul, he was kicked out of the synagogue. That didn't stop him, though. He went and he conducted discussions every day, not just every Saturday now, but every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus was probably some philosopher in Ephesus. There were philosophers everywhere in the Greek world, in the ancient Near East. Paul either rented the hall from him and used it in the afternoon while Tyrannus used it in the morning, or maybe Tyrannus was a believer and just let him use the hall all the time. Who knows? But at any rate, he set up. Now notice he set up outside the church at Ephesus. The church had a the Ephesians had a booming church by this time. Paul didn't interfere with the operations of that church. He was witnessing and evangelizing and trying to get people into the kingdom, and he set up shop away from the church because apostles did not run the church. There's a separation of the church and the work. The church at Ephesus was governed by their own elders. Paul was governing his work. The church in Ephesus did not interfere with Paul in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and Paul did not interfere with the Ephesian church. I owe that great insight to Watchman Nee and his work called The Church in the Work, which I think every missionary ought to read. Now, notice that some became hardened. Now, somebody, John Gill, has come up with a good analogy considering the Holy Spirit and salvation and damnation. The sun shines on people, or the Holy Spirit shines on people, okay? Just like the sun shines on wax and shines on clay. Well, what does the sun do to wax? It melts it. What does sun do to clay? It hardens it. So you got hard hearts down there. The sun shines on the hard heart, on the clay, and makes it even harder and harder. And people get where they hate God. But then when the sun shines on the wax, on, on the people that got, on the, the elect whom God has prepared for salvation, the sun shines on the wax and the wax melts. And people give themselves to Jesus. I like that. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out that Paul's greatest successes were after he withdrew to a separate place of meeting. In other words, after he pulled out of the synagogues. And I don't, I don't think that's surprising because the Jews were so hard. Gentiles seemed to believe a lot faster than Jews did. 
Remember, Paul had to explain as God abandoned his elect in the, in the where is it, Romans 11, I think it is. Has, has God abandoned his elect people? They're not getting saved. And Paul had said, well, it's me. I'm Jewish and I'm saved. So he, at least me is there. I haven't, I, uh, but one person, you know, it just seems kind of sad that there's so few Jews believing. Well, that's just the way it was. And of course, at one point, they're going to come grafted back into the olive tree and go get saved by the cajillions, I hope. I think we also see this in Corinth where his great success came after he got kicked out of the synagogue, Acts 18, 7 through 10. And he departed thence and went into the house of a certain man named Titius Justice, one that worshiped God, a God-fearer, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. He was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So you see, there was a lot of success when Paul went outside the synagogue and started appealing to the Gentiles as well as the Jews instead of just the Jews and the God-fearers directly. We go to verse 10, and this continued for the space of two years. This is two years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. You add that to the three months that he was speaking in the synagogue, so Paul stayed in Ephesus two years and three months. And this continued for the space of two years, so that all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, of course, all means a lot of all does not necessarily mean every last one individually this is you look at that up in a greek lexicon i've done i've seen more bad theology done by a misinterpretation of the word all so here it means a whole heap of people heard the gospel now notice the great effect paul had merely teaching in a lecture hall how could he, how could he have such a great effect on ephesus well, Adam Clark suggests that maybe he did not confine himself to the lecture hall. Maybe he taught and then evangelized outside of that, the lecture hall. I wouldn't doubt that. That could be. Or it could be that people learning from Paul in the lecture hall went out and evangelized. I wouldn't be surprised at that, at, at that either. At any rate, this working of Paul in Ephesus was a part of Paul's missionary strategies, as NIV Study Bible points out. Many of the cities where Paul planted churches were strategic centers. They were focal points from which the gospel radiated out to the surrounding areas. For example, there was Antioch and Pisidia. That was a trade junction. Thessalonica, it's still a big trade place to this day. Athens, well, we know about Athens. And Corinth, which is not so big today, but it was big back then in the Roman Empire. So he went to the big cities and said, let's branch out from there. Now, here's some examples of churches that were actually started from Ephesus. The church at Colossae, the church at Laodicea, the church at Hierapolis, those three churches were in the Lycus River Valley. The Lycus River, if you if you go Ephesus on the coast of Asia Minor, and if you go inland in the into the Carian province there, into Caria, the Meander River runs inland, and then there's a, a tributary of the Meander called the Lycus River. And in that Lycus River Valley, you got three churches, Colossae, which of course is the church that Paul wrote the letter of the Colossians to, Laodicea, that was the one that got in cold in Revelation, Hierapolis is not mentioned in the Bible, but it was there. So Ephesus is doing its missionary job, spreading the gospel. Not only were churches sent out and established by Ephesus, but workers were sent out. Not only were churches established from Ephesus, but workers were sent out from there. Epaphras, Colossians 1.7 tells us that. Archippus, Colossians 4.12-17 tells us that. And Philemon, chapter, verse 23 of Philemon tells us that. He went out from Ephesus. So we got Epaphras, Archippus, and Philemon, workers, sent out from Ephesus doing the work. So we see the gospel spreading, spreading, spreading. And, you know, while all this is going on, there's 
scadzillions of unnamed Christians like you and me doing their best, telling people about Jesus, and that's how the gospel spread. It's not just the big shots here recorded in the book of Acts. There's a bunch of little people doing the job, too. Now, during this time at Ephesus, Paul wrote the letter to the first Corinthians, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, and some say Galatians also. Galatians is kind of iffy. You know, it was either before or during or after the second journey, and here we have some speculation it was doing the third journey. So I don't think anybody really knows when the book of Galatians was written. I don't. Notice it was all that dwelt in Asia heard the word of God. Well, if you look at a map, Asia is the Roman province that covers the old Hellenized provinces of Caria. Let's see, Caria, Mysia, Troas, and Lydia, basically the western chunk of Asia Minor. Asia was the western province, the Roman province that covered all those previous uh, Greek provinces I just told you about. And that's a good piece of area. That's a good good bit of influence that the church of Ephesus had. Of course, John the Apostle, after he died, has said, after he was released from Patmos, I should say, not after he died, was operated in Ephesus. That was his base of operations also. So Ephesus was a big, 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 important hub in the early church and its expansion. This is the great and effectual door that was opened to Paul that he mentions in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. He said, because a wide door for effective ministry is open for me, yet many oppose me. A wide door for effective ministry. Nothing better than that. Nothing better than a door open that you could walk through and spread the gospel of Christ because there's nothing, nothing more fulfilling than spreading the kingdom of God on earth and the good news of Jesus Christ. Not money, not power, not five million followers on Instagram as you curl your eyelashes and put your makeup on and become an influencer. None of that. That you be a big shot quarterback or a big shot point guard. None of that can compare to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 19 verses 11 through 12. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands. We're still in Ephesus now. So that even face claws or work aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now these face claws were probably a headband tied around his head while leatherworking, says the NIV Study Bible. This raises a question in my mind. Is this, these, these claws, these face claws and work aprons, headbands and aprons, work aprons, did they belong to Paul, or did they belong to the friends of the sick people? I believe they would belong to the friends of the sick people. It doesn't really say, but it is a possibility they might have belonged to Paul, and people grabbed them and said, Aha, the apostles closed. Let's touch them and get saved. Now, touching them, were they being superstitious? I don't think so. Just because they those cloths were taken to the sick doesn't mean that the sick didn't have any faith. I do not believe the handkerchiefs were used as superstitious talisman. The people had to have faith in order to bring the clothes, to the cloths, to the sick people. Those people had to have faith, and the sick people needed, somebody needed to have faith. This, of course, happened another time in Acts 5, verses 15 through 16 with the apostle Peter. This is Peter in Jerusalem, right after the falling of Pentecost of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a large group came together from the town surrounding Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So there was the shadow of Peter, and here is maybe the head cloth and the work aprons of Paul, maybe, or maybe they brought head claws to Paul. But the point, but the thing that's so easy to get screwed up here is it's like, aha, we have a magic 
formula that we can get healed by. We can be superstitious. This is what demonic people do, folks. Christians ought not to do that. I know there's this this shyster evangelist named Peter Popoff who would send you little talismans in the mail and says, if you'll send me $100, I'll send you a bottle of my oil or a feather from the Holy Ghost dove. I forgot exactly what the scam was. And if you touch that, you'll get healed. Folks, that's just gullibility. That's just superstition. That's not faith in Jesus. And also, people like that, there's no place in the bad place deep enough for people like that who mock the work of the Holy Spirit so they can get rich. Now, notice this notice of Paul's extraordinary miracles is done shortly after the notice of him teaching daily in the lecture hall at Tyrannus. Paul was a great teacher. He also did miracles. There was no contradiction in the two. Somehow, certain evangelicals I know always mention teaching. They mention seminaries. They talk about seminaries and teaching and teaching and teaching. I Listen, I love teaching. That's what I'm doing now. Nothing wrong with teaching. But Paul didn't limit himself just to teaching. He did miracles. And boy, there's nothing that draws people to the kingdom faster than that. Good teaching with good miracles. In 1 Corinthians 2.4, he told the Corinthians that he had preached in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And demonstration of the Spirit and of power means he did miracles. And not only were they miracles, in verse 11, Luke says they were, they were extraordinary miracles. Now, Jameson, Voss, and Brown say that this implies that he had been working ordinary miracles too, but I don't see how that follows logically. It seems to me any miracle. It could be that all his miracles are extraordinary. And if you ask me, even a little miracle is pretty extraordinary to me. I mean, they wouldn't be called a miracle, would they? They wouldn't be called a wonder if they didn't excite some kind of wonder, but there are some miracles that are bigger than other miracles, of course. Paul was doing the big ones. People that are really, really sick, and they get healed, and they stand up. We go to verse 13 in Acts 19. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Now what these people were doing, they were using the name of Jesus as a magic formula to get demons out. And of course, they would probably get paid for this by the friends of the exorcised These were vagabond fortune tellers. They cured or pretended to cure diseases by charms, as John Gill says. You know, these old commentators are always talking about the fakes, fake exorcists and the fake magic workers. I don't think they were fake. I think they were using the power of the devil. But whether they were fake or not, well, in fact, the reason why I think they they were, I don't know how Gill says they were fake here. I mean, who was it that jumped up and and ripped up the seven sons of Scaven. Were those fake demons doing that? I don't think so. They were using the dark powers of the devil in order to affect cures and maybe predict some stuff. You know, the typical things that the red hand fortune tellers do today. And by using the name of Jesus, they saw that Jesus' name was accompanied with great exorcisms that Paul was doing and his fellow Christians were doing. And so they said, hmm... This Jesus is one powerful guy. Maybe we could use his name and cast out demons. That's blasphemous if you ask me. They're using the name of Jesus without believing in Jesus. They were trying to make more money, more exorcism, more fees. Now, Jewish exorcists existed. Matthew 12, 27, Jesus says this, If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, who is it your sons drive them out by? Well, your sons, the sons of the Pharisees, they were driving out demons too. And that, that is a puzzling verse to me. Were they just doing it fake? It could be. That's what, of course, John Gill says, <laughs> that they were just pretending to drive out demons. But what about this? What if they were saying in the name of Yahweh, 
They didn't believe in Jesus, but they did believe in Yahweh. I drive you out. Seems like a demon would be scared of that name, too. I don't know what those Jewish exorcists were doing. I've always been a little bit puzzled by it. But at any rate, we can see what happens when you try to appropriate the power of God without belief in God in your heart. We'll see that in just a minute in verse 14 and following. Acts chapter 19, verse 14. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. They were casting out demons using the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, whom Paul teaches. First question, what is their Jewish chief priest doing in Ephesus? This is not Jerusalem. This mystery is further deepened when we discover, according to John Gill, that chief priest is not the correct manuscript reading. Adam Clark says it should be priest. Well, I don't know. I don't know the manuscript history that much, but the Holman Christian Study Bible put chief priest, and I think a lot of other English translations do too, so I'm not sure it's a manuscript problem. Well, so here, maybe here's another explanation. Here's the NIV Study Bible's explanation. Most likely, he took the title to further impress people. Hi, I'm Skeva, the Jewish high priest. Well, maybe. Or it could be he was chief of the Jewish priests that were at Ephesus. That, to me, is the most likely solution right there. He was, the, uh, he was the number one Jewish priest that was in Ephesus. And he had seven sons going out making money for him, casting out demons. Verse 15 and Acts 19. The evil spirit answered them. This is the evil spirit in a demon-possessed person answered them, answered the seven sons of Sceva. I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? And the implication this demon was trying to make is, I'm scared of Jesus, and I'm scared of Paul. But I ain't scared of you. John Gill and Adam Clark say that this is the meaning of the verse, and I think they're right. Now, of course, it was the evil spirit who answered, not the man. The man used his vocal cords, but it was the evil spirit during the talking. And I guarantee you this is what it sounded like. I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? I say that because I've heard demons talk, and that's exactly how they talk. Somebody, somehow this got into the movies, too, if you watch these. Not that I would advocate this, but if you ever see one of these Demon movies, you know, where the people are possessed of the demon. They all talk like that. And they do. So that must have been pretty frightening for the sons of Sceva when they heard this nasty voice making fun of them. In verse 16, we read this of Acts chapter 19. Then the man who had the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them so that they ran out of that house naked and wounded. Naked doesn't mean butt naked, probably. It means that their outer garments were ripped off and they were scratched and wounded and banged up. A demonized man has more strength than a natural man. I can speak to this from personal experience. I never forget it. It's a long story, but I'll tell you the end of the story. A demonized teenage girl now. Teenage girl, not exactly the strong. She was large. She was a basketball player, so I'm not saying that she was a little tiny teenage girl, but she was large. She was a teenage girl. She was lying on her back after having just thrown things around and foaming at the mouth, eyes rolling back of her head and grabbing her neck, all the classic signs of demonism. And I had a fellow worker with me a guy named doug and he was holding we were scared she was going to try to kill herself or the demon was going to try to kill her and grab a knife or we didn't know what she was going to do it was a pretty hair-raising experience so doug had one arm uh, holding it down on the floor i had the other arm and by golly that girl started lifting us up with her arms extended by her side lying black flat on her back her arms straight out she lifted both of us up in the air at the same time and so we just started saying, in the name of Jesus, put put your arm back down, you know, because physically we couldn't hold her down. I mean, it, you know, 
So this is what demons do. They they use supernatural. They use the muscles of the human being and give them supernatural strength. Or supernatural might be too strong a word, but give give them greater than normal strength. This is a great verse, by the way, for those who want to make money using the name of Jesus. All these fake evangelists out there with all their fake crap. You're going to get your fanny whipped sooner or later by the demons that are worshiping you. They're going to destroy you. It's going to happen sooner or later. Acts 19, verse 17. This became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus. What? The fact that the sons of Sceva had just gotten their rumpuses whipped by the demons. So everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, you notice that that distinction between Jew and Greek is still big now in the early church. The wall of partition has not really been torn down yet. Both Jews and Greeks, then fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. There's nothing better than to be in an atmosphere where people fear the name of Jesus. They reference his name. They know he has power. They know he's king. Instead, now today, what do we hear in America? People taking his name every time you turn around. You can't watch a movie. You can't watch, You just can't read anything. Jesus' holy name is being blasphemed. OMG, OMG on the on the social media. Oh, my God. Well, it's not Jesus. Let's take God's name in vain. Oh, we don't care. We don't fear God. One day, these people will fear God. Yes, they will. Well, at any rate, the Lord Jesus was magnified because the demons actually had spread forth the name of Jesus. They said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know. Well, who are you? Well, Jesus and Paul got some good PR from the demons. Now, of course, sometimes that can be dangerous. In fact, it's been speculated. That's why when the the Gadarene demoniac said, I know who you are, the Son of God, that Jesus told him to shut up, it's because Jesus didn't want his name being proclaimed by demons. It gave him a bad name to have your name proclaimed by demons. But here, it says the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Eh, but of course, you can also argue it wasn't magnified by the demons saying, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but it was magnified because the fake exorcists will run out of the <laughs> run out of the building. I don't know, though. They Jesus name had to be magnified somebody had to know why this happened and it probably was because of what the demon said jesus i know and paul i know we go to verse 18 of acts 19 and many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices came where probably came to paul and his fellow workers disclosing their practices and that of course involves occult practices levitation fortune telling and all the stupid stuff that Black magic, putting curses on people, voodoo, you know, that kind of stuff, which is typical of all cult people for thousands of years. Verses 19 and 20, and we'll finish up our audio uh, in chapter 19 of Acts. While many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the Lord's message flourished and prevailed. Oh, I just love seeing victory over the demons. 50,000 pieces of silver, a piece of silver in the Greek there was drachma. A drachma was a silver corn worth about a day's wages. So 50,000 days of work, up in smoke. It shows there was a lot of books. Now, what were these books? They were documents bearing alleged magical formulas and esoterica. And these documents... Some of these documents have actually been unearthed in Ephesus, according to the NIV Study Bible. They found these things. The Greek there is is Ephesian letters, apparently occult type of formulas, magical formulas. It was so prevalent in Ephesus that the town gave its name 
to that genre of literature, if I can put it that way, Ephesian letters. Now, Ephesian letters could refer to books with magic written in the books. Adam Clark said the Ephesian letters actually stands for ambulance, a- ambulance, these kind of necklaces that you wear around your neck. The ambulance were inscribed with strange characters. The Ephesian letters were an ambulance, and they, and they were carried about the body for the purpose of curing diseases and expelling demons and warding off evil. Maybe so. But at any rate, it was well known that Ephesus was a center for magical incantation. Demons everywhere in Ephesus. I'm going to quote a pagan Roman historian named Tatian. John Gill quotes Tatian saying this, quote, Ephesus was famous for this sort of learning. Here, Apollonius Tyanius, in the beginning of Nero's reign, reign, opened a school and taught magic and such like things. Frequent mention is made of the Ephesian letters. Remember, that's what the the, the text here, Luke calls it the Ephesian letters, the books. Holman Christian Study Bible translates it. The Greek is the Ephesian letters. And so Tatian says, Frequent mention is made of the Ephesian letters, which were no other than enchantments. And even Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians, is said to be a magician. There was magic arts, soothsaying, necromancy, sorceries, incantations, all over the place in Ephesus, according to Gill and Clark. And that 50,000 drachma price of those books or those ambulances, whatever they were, it was not due to the quality of the books. It was rather because of the supposed power gained by the magic rigmarole of the words and names in those books or on those ambulances. All human beings are scared of the future, they're scared of death, and they're scared of sickness. And that's why Jesus came to, to wipe that fear out if you believe in him. And people who don't believe in him turn to other alternative means to wipe out that fear. They turned to magic, and Ephesus was full of it. The, the bonfire was burned. I can imagine it was a huge bonfire. Jameson Fawcett Brown said the aspect of the tents expresses progress and continuation of the conflagration. In other words, the fire just burned and burned and burned and burned. That scene must have been long remembered at Ephesus. So the gospel is making great progress. An effective door of ministry has indeed been opened for Paul at Ephesus. We will take up events at Ephesus in the next audio, starting at verse 21 at Acts 19, where Paul almost gets himself wiped out in a riot. We'll take that up next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one. I hope you enjoyed this one.